This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. About a decade ago, an advertising company in an African city developed a marketing ploy. And the goal, of course, was to grab people's attention. And to do this, they likely took their cues from the beloved Snow White fairy tale. You know the story, right? The young Snow White, even as a girl at age seven, surpasses her mother's beauty. The mother queen, unsure of it all, turns and asks the mirror whether Snow White is indeed more beautiful than she is. Mother says, magic mirror on the wall, who is the fairest one of all? And the mirror tells her, it's the one who's white as snow. This whole notion of the talking mirror, it's quite curious, but this African advertising uh, agency, they decided to capitalize on it, to bring it to life. And so they set up this tall, giant, 10-foot tall mirror on a busy sidewalk. This happened about a decade ago, and as, as women walked by it, the mirror would speak to them. And as the women looked into the mirror, it would tell them, not that they were the fairest by contrasting them with other women, but it would simply give them affirmations and encourage them to walk a little lighter that day. Hey, you with the short hair, that coat looks great on you. You, you are beautiful. Hey, you, I love the haircut. Or, hey, you. Why so serious? Come on, give me a smile. And of course, a decade later, other companies, they've taken it to the next level. Several exercising companies, they've now created talking mirrors too. They encourage you. They walk you through exercising in place in your house. They walk you through doing yoga and the like. And these mirrors, they double as home decor and exercise equipment at the same time. But the interesting thing in each of these scenarios is that the mirrors, they seem to awake based on humans looking into them. It's only when a human looks into the mirror or gazes into the mirror that it wakes up and it speaks, and it interacts. It comes alive, so to speak. And we, all of us here, who've lived through pandemics and crashing towers and wars, we who live in the wake of trying to kill God, we're reminded that we see through a glass darkly. 
when we think we've grasped Jesus, we still see him darkly. And there's likely no more potent reminder of that than Good Friday. Many have gotten hung up on the notion that the day's name kind of betrays its reality, doesn't it? Is it really good? Some have errantly speculated that it comes from the German Gottesfriedag, but if you know German, well, maybe that'll rub you a little bit the wrong way. For you to know that Germans refer to Good Friday not as Gottesfriedag, but as Kotterfriedag, sorrowful Friday. No, the good part in Good Friday comes from the older English sense, where good meant holy. See, down through the history of the English language, as we make our way through its corridors, we run back into this day being called Holy Friday, and Sacred Friday, and Passion Friday, and Passion, of course, meaning suffering, as in the Passion of the Christ. This sacred and holy day is without a doubt aptly described Suffering Friday, or Sorrowful. Friday. And it is so for numerous reasons, right? We look upon Jesus' suffering and it becomes sort of a mirror. We did this. We look upon the suffering of the world which stands in the shadows of the cross and realize we did this sorrowful Friday, the day of the cross, is the mirror that awakens when we look into it. And I hope something awakens in us too, namely the fact that it is we, we who are culpable for the sad state of this world. Sorrowful Friday is a mirror. The cross is a mirror. We see Jesus darkly, and even now at this very moment, we see ourselves and each other darkly. When we look into the cross, or look upon the cross, we begin to see our sins in this mirror, our true selves. And as soon as we do, we often try to cover them up. Kind of like we do with makeup or try to find a better angle from which to look at ourselves. It's the light, the way that it's hitting makes us uncomfortable. <clears throat> That's what Sorrowful Friday with Jesus' cross at the center does, yeah. It reminds us that we've made a mockery of God. He entrusted this planet, his son, his church, and one another to us. Yet, we've simply mocked the giver by squandering the gifts. Wendell Berry, the great author and farmer with such poetic sting, puts it this way, says, it's the destruction of the world 
in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half to destroy that which we were given in trust. <laughs> How will we bear it? It's our own bodies that we give to be broken. Our bodies existing before and after us in the clod and cloud, worm and tree, that we driving or driven despise in our greed to live, our haste to die to have lost wantonly the ancient forests, the vast grasslands, in our madness, the presence in our very bodies of our grief. Indeed, like an ungrateful child on Christmas morning, we fail to properly acknowledge the value of the gift and its giver. It's Easter season, of course, so why should Christmas get my mention tonight? Well, to be quite honest, I find the juxtaposition of Christmas and Easter very fascinating, but I'm not going to linger there except momentarily. I only want to make the point, however briefly, that deep down, it seems that many really want a world opposite of Christmas. And by that I mean that many simply want the world of God without us. But perhaps from a more narcissistic perspective, us without God. It's the stuff of John Lennon songs, isn't it? Did he touch a nerve deep within, like strike a deep chord? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion to. Imagine all the people living in peace. Is that the world we want? The world we even want to imagine? A world of us without God or God without us? For many, I think so. And I think many are willing to kill for that kind of world. This week, in something of an ill-timed but perhaps purposefully timed release, the Gallup poll shared the results of the new study. And on Monday, as just as Holy Week got underway, they published a report saying that for the first time in our recent history, or in American history perhaps, religious membership fell below 50% to a mere 47%. Their conclusion, and I quote, continued decline in future decades seems inevitable. That in and of itself is sad, but it was the comments on the news site, NPR, that, that thread that just about did me in. One commentator, quite representative of the thousands and thousands of comments, said, yes, finally, 
And could the rest of you hurry up, please? Another, there is no God or gods. Another, great news, exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Another, progress. Another, thank God. Another, this is the best news I've heard in a long time, about freaking time. Another, only 47% more to go. Another way to go. Keep it up. Finally, some good news. Another people are realizing religion is the root of all evil. And one channeling their inner Nietzsche. God is dead. And so it goes. The list goes on. In the first century, we humans were, after all, willing to kill God himself to get that kind of world, or at least that's what we thought. It was no different then. There were no news threads, but the comments were heard. The comments shouted at Jesus weren't that different, were they? Not at all. Now, just as then, we wanted a world for us. by us, without God. We wanted the gift, but not the giver. And so we hung God on a cross. We killed him. Humanity killed him. The cross, yeah, it's a major turning point in history. It's a massive tilt in the world's history. It's a pivot moment in time. It's the moment we're forced to look at and in turn, look at ourselves. Some will look at the cross and see their complicity. Others will try to hide behind whether historical facts bear everything about the crucifixion out, and many are just gonna look away immediately because they can't stand the truth of the cross. But while the cross is certainly a historic pivot moment in time, a pivot moment on our timeline. It's a tilt, too, because we can't look upon it and really hide any longer. So during Christmas, we sing that Hebrew name, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, which means, as you know, God with us. But on Sorrowful Friday, we sing that Hebrew name, Emmanuel, or Nimanuel. God without us. That, of course, is God's wrath after all. I've said that many times before that we often get God's judgment and God's wrath mixed up, right? God's wrath is his absence is pulling away and it's like this, right? That, that God's judgment is really just the consequences of our sin. And so God is kind of holding those consequences at bay, that judgment at bay, as it were. But when God steps away, his wrath, his absence, we're now left to deal with the rush of that judgment, the consequences of our sin coming headlong for us. Because we've rejected God. God's wrath is God without us. And a world filled with God's absence, with God without us, is what some and all their delusion think would make this world a better place. 
they and others with warped imaginations sing along with the radio about it. But you know, none of the horrible things that we've done can truly be pinned to God. You know, it's a common trope to hear preachers go after the media, and of course rightly so sometimes, but Sorrowful Friday, Passion Friday, Good Friday is perhaps a chance to fess up, to own up, to get real with ourselves. It's a day where we have to look at ourselves rather than scapegoating the media and diverting attention away from us. Jesus gave himself for us. He atoned his sins for us. But what's really interesting to me is, as N.T. Wright, the great theologian, put it, is that leading up to the cross, Jesus didn't give his disciples a theory of atonement. <laughs> <laughs> As if there could be one theory anyway, right? During the Passover week's devastating events, Jesus didn't, as much as some of us might wish he had, give a theology course on atonement or recommend a good book on atonement. Jesus didn't give his followers that theory. You know what he gave them? A meal. He sat down at a table, a meal, with betrayers. He sat in an upper room and broke bread with bad friends. He sat down and shared the cup with those who doubted and broke promises and traded him in for a few coins. The truth be told, we could replace our faces in Da Vinci's famous Last Supper painting with those who were in the upper room, right? Have we not made promises to the Lord and then broken them like Peter? Have we not denied him and his truth before others? Like Peter? Have we not doubted him like Thomas? Have we not traded him for things of lesser value? Like Judas? And beyond that, have we not wrongly accused him? like the officials put the blame on him? Have we not left him out to dry like those who were in power? Have we not let him fend for himself when we could have spoken up? Have we not watched while others around skewered him? Oh, we have. We all have. The cross of sorrowful Friday is not the kind of mirror any of us want to look into. And sadly, many preachers, right, they want, to, they want to even skip the pain and horror of Friday and just jump straight to Sunday. But we need to be reminded we can't. We can't. Yeah, it's not an option. We can't skip Friday. This is not an evening where any preacher with his or her grain of salt skips the chance to remind you tonight, tomorrow, you need to sit in your sin. Feel it. Own it. Because it's only, and I mean only, when you do that, that Sunday has any value. If you don't 
feel your sin on Friday and Saturday and Sunday morning, then you are the thief of the empty tomb. You've robbed it of its real value. And so no, we don't skip Friday. We need to sit with verses like Matthew 27, 18 and Mark 15, 10. They need to weigh on us. Mark 15, 10 tells us, for Jesus knew that the chief priests handed him over out of envy. That should hit us like a splash of cold water. We could consider so many verses this evening, couldn't we? We could dive deep into the gory details of ancient crucifixions. We could talk about betrayal in the garden, the secret trial by night. We could talk about much, but for just a moment, let's park here. Let's come clean on the very real human motivation behind Jesus' death. Envy. Now, many mistake envy with jealousy. They're not the same. Jealousy and envy are not synonyms. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. But envy, it's another animal. It's a step up. It's wanting what someone has and in the process of getting what they have, desire, desiring evil to befall them. And so don't miss that. Those who stood against Jesus handed him over out of envy. They wanted what he had. But not just that. They wanted evil to befall him in the process of getting what he had. So, how, <laughs> how, they, they not only wanted Jesus's, what, what Jesus had, his budding fame, but they wanted to have it, while evil befell him, and they're taking of it. So it raises a question, how did Jesus get all that fame, all that attention? How did he get all that fame and attention when all those religious leaders didn't? And there's an answer. He loved people. Like, truly loved people. Like, authentically and really loved people. And people saw it and felt it, they sensed it. And the religious establishment of the day, the religious officials, no, they didn't love people. They loathed people. They looked down on people. And they couldn't put two and two together to notice the difference between them and Jesus. And so the solution, kill Jesus. Falsely accuse him, try him, killed him. Jesus was tried, taken before the officials, and the false charge, blasphemy. The true crime, loving people. The true crime, John 3.16. Do 
you ever thought of John 3.16 as a crime? That's the reality. This Friday, it ends with a picture of God as a man hanging on a cross. Why? For loving people who didn't really love him back. For loving people who didn't really know how to love him back. For loving people who wanted a world of God without us. Yet a world of God without us really isn't in the cards. As Desmond Tutu reminds us, God could have been God without us, God without creation, but he chose otherwise. Indeed, when we look to the cross, there hangs God loving us who put him there. And again, if we're honest, we've all felt sorrowful Friday love. We've all been, we've been loved by those that refused, that we refused to love back. We've done sorrowful Friday love. We've manifested what we perceive to be love in distorted, aggressive, hateful, abusive, and manipulative ways. We've raped and pillaged and destroyed the lands, the waters, and we've hurt one another. And so at the risk of minimizing that Friday back at the end of Jesus' earthly sojourn, I hesitantly suggest to you tonight that in a very real way, life is a bunch of sorrowful Fridays, a bunch of little good Fridays, or it should be anyway. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the hands of Nazis, urged that the key to Good Friday is to suffer with God. And therein truly does lie the key to it all, to life. There will be suffering in this world. We can strive for a world of God without us, and go it alone, or try to go it alone. Or we can see things for the way they really are and refuse to go it alone. We can refuse to let God go it alone. We can enter into his suffering and allow him to enter into ours. If we are Peter, and Thomas, and Judas, and the soldiers, and Pilate, then let us also be merry. Let us grieve like her. And let us not do it alone, apart from God. You know, when I was younger, I loved going to the county fair, the county carnival, whenever it rolled, rolled through town at the end of each summer. And every year they'd have one of these fun houses that you could go into. I suppose they're called fun houses because they're supposed to incite laughter, but really they can be kind of disturbing. When you enter in, it's just a maze of mirrors. And sometimes you can't tell a mirror from what's not a mirror, and you'll run into the mirror. Blood stains and broken noses weren't uncommon, but they had all sorts of mirrors in there in the funhouse. Tall mirrors, long mirrors, round mirrors, floor mirrors, ceiling mirrors, concave mirrors, and so on. And at various points, you'd reach these points where you could see yourself in nearly all the types of mirrors. Over here in this one, you're squished. And over here in this one, you're stretched. Over here, you're upside down. And over here, your head is gigantic and your body's small. And over here, you're distorted in the face. And as you look around, you see that sort of infinity effect where there are all these distortions of you going on forever. 
getting smaller and smaller. And although it was an infinity effect, eventually the image of you sort of vanishes or extinguishes. And I think that's what it might be like for God to look at us. <clears throat> Franz Hartmann described this sort of thing as God had created man in his own likeness to be his own image and like him in all respects, but the self-will and perverted imagination of man continually causes the divine image in him to become weakened, blurred, distorted, and even effaced. So there's a sense, isn't there, that Good Friday is not only us looking into the cross as a mirror, but also God looking at us quite like mirrors and seeing himself and how badly we've distorted his image and likeness. One Dan Miller put it this way, Good Friday invites from deep within us our great grief cry as we weep with remorse for both our inconspicuous and our blatant refusals to make God's dream come true on earth as it is in heaven. Good Friday invites us from deep within, from deep within us, a great grief cry so heartfelt and piercing that it might move God or the agents of God's mercy to break into our lives and into our troubled world with compassion and energizing love. Good Friday invites from deep within us the audacity to hope that dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. If we listen and let the darkness speak, when we cannot see our way through, the chosen foolishness of our faith becomes a holy suspicion that Good Friday is the seedbed of new life. And the moving force of the great transformation that was contained from the beginning in God's original dream and heart's desire for us on all the earth. Good Friday is, as Matthew Bolton puts it, an unimaginable mercy. And yet God steps into this ugly, divisive choreography to save us from self-destruction. God takes our place and dies in the, crucifixion, in the crucifixion itself like a mirror. For all us to see, God lays bare not only divine mercy, but also what we've done or rather what we're continuing to do. This mirror isn't meant to shame us. It's meant to move us, to change us, to wake us up and send us out along a different path. Indeed, in the destruction of Christ's body, if we look deeply enough, we see something profound. Here's the bottom line. If we gaze deeply enough into the mirror cross, we can see our repeated attempts to destroy the world, one another, and God. And in our destruction of the world, past and present, if we look deeply enough, we can see in the mirror the crucifixion. So on this good, sorrowful Friday, may the cross mirror awaken you to all the sorrowful Fridays we create 
and participate in and ignore. And may we own up to this web of destruction that we're all seemingly caught in, this hubris all around us. May the cross mirror wake you up as you look into it. And with that, let me send you off into the darkness with the imprint of the cross on your mind. <clears throat> let me offer tonight what I'm going to call a reverse benediction. Where you leave here uncomfortable in the face of your fallenness. And now, you turn your hands upright and receive this. May the Lord's cross disturb you and unsettle you. May the Lord's face, when you look upon it, trouble you tonight and bother you. May the Lord's sacrifice weigh heavy on you and concern you. And when you look in the mirror, may the cross remind you of what a world of God without us and us without God looks like. Amen, brothers and sisters. As you exit, do so quietly. Go into the darkness.